Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in African American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Omari Averett Phillips, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Jovan Scott Lewis about his new book, Violent Utopia, Dispossession, and Black Restoration in Tulsa. Dr. Jovan Scott Lewis, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Omari. Absolutely. Uh, so, Dr. Lewis, I wonder if you could just begin the interview just by telling us a little bit about yourself. Uh, yeah, sure. You know, so I am I am an associate professor um, and chair of geography at UC Berkeley. Um, you know, my work largely, you know, is concerned with the experience of you know racialized impoverishment. Um, in other words, what are the lives, conditions, and and aspirations for uh, you know poor Black people. Um, and thinking about those conditions as part of a kind of continuing legacy of, you know, Black Atlantic life. And moreover, how do we think beyond just the injury and some of the kind of difficulties of, of those conditions towards um, coming up with a framework for repair reparations? And so as a result, um, in addition to the work that I do in my scholarship on reparations, I'm also a task force member of the California State Reparations Task Force. Uh, which is a, a governor-appointed position that I've been on since uh, June of 2021, and which actually ends uh, this coming July with our recommendations to the state for reparations for uh, Black Americans. Yeah, and I'm looking forward to that report myself personally. Um, but so on this on this particular book, on this, how did you come to this project? Yes. So, you know, Violent Utopia um, is a project that I've always been asked, you know, how did I come to this to this to this project or the research? Because, you know, I'm also Jamaican. And so when I began this research in 2014, um, everybody was really curious, you know, as to why I, a Jamaican, you know, who wrote my first book, you know, on on Jamaica, was somehow in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And I mind you, this was, you know, prior to, you know, the release of the Watchmen and, you know, that kind of period between 2019 and, and 2020, 
where the kind of history of Greenwood uh, became, you know, even more um, popularized and I would argue even celebrated. So, you know, I, I came to this research because I was a postdoc. I was, you know, I got my PhD from the London School of Economics in the Department of Anthropology um, in 2014. And following graduation, I had the opportunity to join a research project that, you know, took the researchers to various places. Some of us went to Madagascar, some of us went to Taiwan, um, and some of us went to uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma. Um, And so, um, you know, I went to Tulsa, I arrived in Tulsa. In, in 2014, as part of a project that was really there to kind of, from an anthropological standpoint, understand the relationship um, of of uh, you know cooperation within within communities and between communities, and in particular, I was interested in, in studying the relationship um, between you know black uh, you know community formation and and, and cooperation. Um, and so I got there as a result of this postdoc, um, and it was a year-long postdoc, and, you know, things could have ended there. Um, but I really did come to appreciate the history and the complexity of the narrative of Black life in, in Oklahoma. Um, and so I continued to return. And so that's how I got there. And I think, you know, the, the, the book itself is a testament as to why I continue to, to do my research there. Absolutely. Um, so you have this wonderful note uh, explain sort of your use of riot uh, and massacre with, throughout this work. I wonder if you could take us through uh, your your use of those words and how you sort of came to that understanding of, of what to use in this work. Sure. And so in a way, it, it kind of does require going back to, you know, 2014 when I when I got to, to Tulsa and, um, you know, as I as I state in the introduction to the book, I, I arrived in Tulsa. Um, you know, really the week after um, Mike Brown was murdered in Ferguson. And I was really struck by the fact that there was, you know, very little, you know, protest, um, you know, to be found in, in, in Tulsa, despite it being, you know, just a five-hour drive away from, from Ferguson, Missouri. And so um, the the history of the Tulsa race massacre really wasn't, you know, something that community members discussed a lot in 2014 when I arrived. And so in many ways, the language, you know, around that that incident and, and its particular history um, really comported with what was at that point the accepted, you know, terminology, which was riot. So it was known as a Tulsa race riot. And it wasn't until about 2017, you know, as local organizers, especially, you know, you know, a few years away from the centenary of the 21 uh, race massacre began to organize around, you know, that history, you know, a, a movement for reparations had been, you know, renewed um, despite it being attempted, you know, in the late 90s uh, in 2000, 2001. Um, and there was a, an attempt to, I think, recover, you know, some of the, the kind of basis for, you know, the, the kind of claim making that's possible around such a horrific, you know, um, incident. And so, you know, organizers began to switch the language from riot to massacre because they wanted to try and get at the severity and, again, the horror of, you know, the two days of, of, of brutality and murder. Um, and destruction that that took place in 1921, and so for me, you know, I I wanted to kind of reflect the evolution of that language, 
but I, and I also wanted to, you know, honor that there were still some people who used the, the word, right, uh, riot to explain what happened. And, and beyond just, you know, accepting the choices of individuals and their preferred terminology, it was important for me to actually get at some of the complicated activities that occurred during the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre. Meaning, depending on 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 which aspect of the overall Tulsa, you know, community you were looking at, um, both a riot and a massacre took place. And so, when you're looking at what occurred, right, what the experiences were of Tulsa's black community, you know, despite the fact that we, we need to, you know, set the record straight, you know, uh, Greenwood residents they fought and fought very hard, you know, and and they received shots and they and they sent shots right back. Um, but on the whole, when you look at the devastation to their community, and that's, you know, that's to the lives lost, hundreds of lives lost, um, that are accounted for, as well as the complete devastation to infrastructure and people's homes and businesses, it was a massacre. But I also want to recover the use of the word riot because I want to really help to convey really what what we can understand as a kind of, you know, the, the presentation of a particular kind of white violence and, and how it presents and how it shows up and how it operates. And so the term riot for me needs to still remain, you know, in play because it actually does help to, to get at, you know, what was, you know, in the hearts of the white terrorists. That's what we should really call them. Um, and it allows for us to, I think, create a, a kind of custodianship between different kinds of activities by especially, you know, what we might think of as disgruntled, you know, white citizens in this country who have used violence and terror as their primary instruments of reordering society, you know, to their preference. And so for me, riot and massacre are both required to get at the comprehensive set of activities that took place. Um, you know, on those two days in 1921, but also that continue to take place today. And so we can continue to see Black communities being massacred, you know, by a variety of, of, of mechanisms. Um, and we can continue to see, and we know, you know, January 6th, um, you know, the January 6th, uh, you know, capital riot um, is an example, once again, you know, of a, of a kind of continuing practice of, you know, some white Americans not seeing society, you know, go in a direction or operate in a manner to their liking and using violence, you know, as a corrective means of, you know, returning society to, you know, their preferred uh, formation and, and practice. And so right and massacre are both necessary. And that's why I use both of them in the book. Awesome. And you have this wonderful sort of diversity of sources that you're using within this work. Uh, I wonder if you could talk to us a little bit about some of the sources that you use and how you sort of use them in this work to sort of build this narrative. Sure. So, you know, you have to understand that the, the history of Tulsa is one of a, of a booster, a booster town. And so when oil is found um, in and, and near Tulsa, 1903 and 1905. Um, it's important to know that oil is found just prior to the founding of Greenwood. Um, so the Greenwood district, you know, later known as, as Negro or Black Wall Street, um, is formally founded in, in 1906. And so they really are, you know, developing 
at um, the time where Tulsa is becoming recognized as as really an oil epicenter in in the world, and so the the nineteen twenty one Tulsa race massacre happens, you know, fifteen years basically after you know Tulsa, um, you know, has this this kind of oil boom. Um, you know, it happens about fifteen years, you know, or so after Greenwood is founded. And so it is very much a young city. It is a young city with a lot of economic promise. And so after the, you know, as a result of the the, the race massacre, immediately following the, the race massacre, you know, it was widely publicized. You know, there were, you know, gruesome postcards, you know, showing the devastation of those two days that circulated, you know, newspapers wrote editorials, local newspapers in Tulsa wrote editorials, um, the New York Times, you know, had an editorial in, in, in the days following the massacre about what happened there. Um, and so in many ways, one would suspect that there would be a trove of, of um, you know, primary, primary resources. Um, however, because Tulsa was a booster town, you know, the, the kind of um, the entrepreneurial and industrial, you know, elite in the city, you know, and civic leaders as well, actually entered into a state of panic. Because who wants to do business in a place, right? That is, you know, now known as much for uh, race riots and massacres as it is for a booming oil industry. Um, and so Scott Ellsworth, historian Scott Ellsworth, has a wonderful book that he goes and details really this cover-up operation, right? That made actually finding, you know, the story as it were really difficult, um, you know. And so as a result. For me, you know, the the research for this book relied on what primary information, what primary resources were available. Um, there were, you know, uh, a bunch of books, right? There have been a lot of books. Mine is not the first. Uh, it certainly will not be the last book written on the Tulsa Race Massacre. It, it shouldn't be, at least. Um, there are a lot of secondary literatures that were very helpful, right, in detailing, you know, some aspects of everyday life. But for me, you know, in thinking about what, what kind of archive was needed in a place with this particular history, it really was talking, you know, to, you know, to local residents and especially the elders who lived, you know, um, in the city who, you know, likely did not experience the race massacre directly. Um, well, in fact, they didn't, but their parents, their parents would have, you know. And so for me, you know, a lot of the book was, was you know, really drawing on the resource, the archive of of the the kind of living archive of the community. Moreover, for me, the book shouldn't be read as a book about the race massacre. The book should be seen as you know a a book about the the kind of processes that created a place like Greenwood, um, the kind of broader processes that create what we can think of as anti-black destruction that you know repre were represented um, you know in the the 21 race massacre but also the the kind of narrative of you know community repair that that I think is needed broadly when we think about black life in the United States and really in, you know across the Americas uh, but for sure, you know, there were a lot of, you know, conventional archives that I was able to go to. There were a lot of community-based archives. The Greenwood Culture Center, for example, had a, a wonderful, um, you know, repository of, of primary resources. But 
Greenwood, the Greenwood Culture Center actually was a, a wonderful site, you know, to really meet community members um, and especially community elders um, that were really instrumental to, you know, writing this, 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 this history. Wonderful. Uh, I wonder if you could give us just a brief history of Greenwood and talk about sort of what helps to create a space like that. Sure, sure. So, you know, Greenwood can be seen really as being, you know, a variation of the what we know as the kind of historical all black town. Um, you know, Oklahoma, Oklahoma, the state of Oklahoma, um, which we should note became a state after Greenwood was founded. So Greenwood was founded in 1906 and Oklahoma became a state in 1907. Um, so but statehood, you know, um, followed what we can think of as the, the kind of period of Indian Territory, where the eastern part of the current state of Oklahoma um, was the site uh, or the destination site of what we, you know, generally know as the Trail of Tears. Um, so Indian removal, you know, you know, effectively led you know, um, native, you know, native peoples from the southeastern United States, we might also recognize as the five civilized tribes um, to, you know, to Indian territory. And so um, following the General Allotment Act or the Dawes Act, um, you know, a lot of those lands became saleable. And, you know, there were, there were, you know, black uh, native people, meaning, you know, members of these these, these tribal societies um, that we would recognize as African-American or descendants of African-Americans or African enslaved persons um, in the United States um, who also had access to these lands due to their tribal affiliations um, and memberships. And so their lands became saleable and African-Americans really following the, the kind of tr the exodus their tradition, um, you know, in the, in the kind of uh, wake of the failure of reconstruction, um, you know, Indian territory found itself being, you know, increasingly populated by by black settlers from the south. Um, and when they settled, you know, they formed communities, you know, they formed local governments, they formed industries, you know, commercial, social, cultural lives, and 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 this took the form of what we now recognize as all black towns. Um, and so you're talking about, you know, a practice that goes back to the eighteen eighties in Indian territory specifically. And so Greenwood really, you know, follows in that tradition where you had some early black entrepreneurs. We can, today we call them developers, I guess, um, <laughs> um, you know, who were able to acquire about 40 acres or so of creek uh, uh, land in, in, uh, in Tulsa. And, you know, on, on those 40 or so acres, they founded Greenwood. And, you know, as a result of them having access to capital and land, you know, and and I guess will, you know, they they formed the Greenwood District, and you know, in many ways, it it it, it uh, again, it was modeled off of these all black towns that had existed, you know, in Indian Territory um, for some time, and it of course existed all across the United States, right? We can, I'm in California, we had an all black town, you know, a couple here in California, there were, um, you know, all across the South, I mean, you know, so that that history is there. Um, and as a quick plug, I'd, I'd recommend people to go check out uh, Carter Slocum's really fantastic book, um, you know, Black Towns, Black Futures, which gives a really wonderful detailing, not just of the history, but of the contemporary lives of all black towns in, in Oklahoma. So Greenwood, so Greenwood is, is basically an all black town, but because it's in the city, you know, it basically is within the, the kind of jurisdiction of what becomes Tulsa um, proper um, or what is Tulsa proper. 
um, it is it is not you know a town per se, but a district because Greenwood becomes annexed to the city of Tulsa in 1910. So about three years after statehood, Greenwood actually becomes a formal part of the city of Tulsa, and so most of its life is spent as a kind of district. Um, and there, you know, there's there's this 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 kind of baseline for economic activity, um, commercial activity. Um, people are attracted to this place. You know, they bring their talents, they bring their you know their their will and and you know the greenwood district develops as a site of of what i would call you know um a really respectable kind of commercial and cultural land um the greenwood district is really marked by greenwood avenue which you know is a primary thoroughway uh, uh where thoroughfare where you have um banks and shops and, and all kinds of leisure leisure spaces um and there's you know churches and high schools and all kinds of things where um you know becomes a heart of of a black of a black community um and so that's you know that's greenwood you know people worked in um, largely secondary industries because although tulsa is a thriving oil um uh, uh center you know, African Americans are largely barred from participating directly in the oil industry, but there is a lot of money in Tulsa because of oil, meaning a lot of money amongst the the white residents of Tulsa, and so African Americans are able to kind of tap into the kind of like secondary and tertiary markets related to the oil industry, and so you have people who set up auxiliary businesses, people who are working in domestic labor or the general service industries. Um, you know, you have, you know, black Tulsans who, you know, again, you know, are moneylenders and there are whites who are borrowing from, from black moneylenders, you know what I mean, in, in Tulsa. So it really was a kind of interracial, you know, commercial space, um, you know, all made possible really by the circumstances of, of the oil industry, but then the concentration of, of, of wealth. I should, you know, if you can call it well, um, you know, it's important to note that a lot of Greenwood District was, you know, populated by poorer people, but still the the wealth that was there, you know, the, the, the kind of Jim Crow segregationist codes meant that a lot of the black, you know, black wealth that was created in Greenwood was able to, was, was required to remain in Greenwood. And so that actually ended up, you know, facilitating a lot of commercial development um, in the district. Um, and so as a result, you know, a variety of things, you know, flourished and, and were developed. And, and what you have was, I think, um, you know, people, um, you know, writers for papers like the Oklahoma Eagle and so forth would say like, you know, Greenwood represented quintessential Americano. You know what I mean? Everybody, you know, had their Sunday best on on a Sunday, were strolling down Greenwood Avenue, you know, living the kind of, you know, so-called American dream, uh, although facilitated directly by Jim Crow segregation. <laughs> So uh, you, you, this work is sort of structured, as you say, around five analytical themes, uh, violence, inheritance, restoration, repair, and territory. Uh, could you just briefly explain what these themes mean in the context of the book? And then we can sort of get into the chapter by chapter there. Yeah, sure. So, you know, the the thrust of the book is trying to get at, you know, as I said, the the issue of the race massacre is an example of a kind of ongoing kind of violence that African-Americans continue, you know, to face. Um, and as I said, I'm on the Persians task force and I can, you know, I can, I can declare, you know, faithfully that, you know, California's black history is very similar in the same way. Um, 
you know, we can talk about Bruce's Beach here in, in, in Los Angeles, where, you know, black families are owning land and developing businesses. And here comes the state, right, to undermine, you know, undermine those those efforts. And so so violence for me in, in, in the first chapter was really an attempt to try and get at, you know, the kind of state of anti-blackness that the race massacre is only an example of. You know, and then moving moving forward, you know, through the remaining through the remaining um, you know analytics, I wanted to try and, and understand you know what the consequences of that violence uh, were, and so inheritance was a way of thinking about that consequence and and that consequence as representing a kind of of, of black inheritance, you know, um, and so then restoration was was you know, an attempt to say, well, you know, that inheritance isn't the full story. You know what I mean? Like when you go to Oklahoma, when you go to Tulsa and you understand, you know, as I was able to, you know, the complexity and richness of black life, you know, and, and historical black life in the city, um, you you quickly you quickly come to appreciate that there is an effort to 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 recover that history um and to recover the life that that you know, say contemporary Black Tulsa's ancestors you know once enjoyed, and so restoration was, you know, my attempt at trying to figure out how exactly the community were working at, at trying to get back there in in a way, and then so repair you know repair was you know thinking about restoration you know moves us towards thinking about you know well what are the means by which we can think you know reparations and repair. Um, because a restored community in this case would effectively be a repaired community. And so, you know, that's that's what the analytic is, is, is there for. And then, you know, I end I end in territory um for a couple of reasons. You know, historically speaking, territory, you know, um could in principle have served as the first chapter, right? Where we're thinking historically about Indian territory. Um however, I I, I place it last because I am trying to to make an argument for something, you know, beyond just the history of Greenwood, you know, by pointing, I think, pointing towards and pointing out the, the kinds of lessons that Black life in Indian territory, you know, could, you know, uh, could share. Um, and so that's, that's the kind of, you know, I, I think um, the, that was the thinking, at least, as far as what these different analytics were, were trying to do in the book. Wonderful. And so you already talked a little bit about chapter one, so let's just skip to chapter two. Uh, so you, you look at the sort of afterlives of the Tulsa riot or massacre. And the question I guess here from this for, for the listeners is what sort of was or is the community in North Tulsa like after this massacre and after this riot? Um, so, you know, so I, I do. I think to answer that, I do have to go back into chapter one very briefly because I don't. I don't want. I don't want the impression to be that chapter one is about the race massacre, right? It's chapter one, I think, dedicates a total of like fifteen pages to discussing the race massacre, um, and the, and the reason why is that you know it's about showing that the race massacre, you know, appears as a kind of you know exceptional violence, but but actually, you know, we think about the consequences of anti-black violence. You know, we we can we can we can in fact see it in much more unexceptional or seemingly unexceptional ways. And so in chapter one I move from the 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 race massacre to you know to make the case that listen, you know, within five or so years following the the, the race massacre, you know, Greenwood largely redeveloped. 
right? And that's part of the story that often gets left out. Um, however, by 1930, you know, the Homeowners Loan Corporation, you know, comes in part of that New Deal, um, you know, instrument of, of funding or defunding certain cities, you know, through through um, access or, or, or denied access to, you know, to loans and, and, and capital. Um, and so redlining basically comes in and and represents another form of violence, which is then followed by what we can think of as urban renewal, uh, you know, broadly under understood, you know, so the highway comes in by the 1950s um, and does further damage by actually demolishing critical areas of Greenwood, um, you know, and that and that leads to, you know, the 1980s when you're thinking about, you know, the turn towards mass incarceration, you know, the war on drugs, war on poverty, um, and and that ends up really setting the conditions for what I call in chapter two, you know, the inheritance. And so what that inheritance looks like in chapter two is a landscape um, that is, you know, completely opposite in many ways to, you know, what Greenwood, what Greenwood was and looked like, you know, so Greenwood um, being a, an active commercial, you know, area, you know, supplemented by lots of social life and, and, and cultural activities, um, you know, grocery stores, banks, etc. North Tulsa, right, um, which the general area is now recognized as, um, has none of those things, really. So by the time I get to Tulsa in 2014, um, you know, there are no grocery stores in the community. You know, the, the education is, is largely provided through, um, you know, nonprofit and philanthropic means, you know, the, the educare um, primary schools or, you know, elementary schools are made possible by the George Kaiser, you know, Family Foundation. Um, you know, groceries are, are provided through nonprofit mobile grocery stores that drive around neighborhoods. You know, most people are doing their shopping at quick stop gas stations. And so, you know, the inheritance looks, you know, looks like that, you know, um, the, the Greenwood that we know of, you know, from the histories of, of Black Wall Street, you know, isn't, isn't there. Um, and so that's what North Tulsa looks like. It looks like what we might think of as, you know, an impoverished, you know, Black space that is made so by the, the kind of typical mechanics of, of you know, uh, state disinvestment. Um, as well as um, over policing, as well as the um, the attrition of of you know uh, economic opportunity and the diminishing of healthcare services and educational access. So in many ways, this is what this is what North Tulsa looks like um, in you know in the contemporary moment. Um, what Walter Rodney would call the kind of quintessential underdeveloped space where the local community is wholly reliant on external um, sources for you know everyday um, existence. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. 
Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Yeah, and you go deeper into this in chapter three, right, where you talk about sort of community organizing around food access in North Tulsa. Um, and so can you take us through what some of these community organizing efforts look like around this um, and how they show sort of how the community works together to, as you say, sort of reconcile their circumstances with their history? Sure. So, you know, when I when I get to Tulsa, you know, there there's no grocery store. Um, and so a lot of the community are concerned, you know, about about food access, you know. Um, and so, I mean, chapter three is basically, you know, a, a kind of in-depth ethnographic analysis of a grocery store related community meeting. Right. Um, and so those who are listening, especially grad students, it's, it's entirely fine for you to you know, to have this kind of really, you know, concentrated and concerted, you know, emphasis on a particular moment um, ethnographically and to try and, and glean what understandings uh, you can from that uh, about broader processes and phenomenon. So the, the, you know, chapter three is, is for me a really important chapter because, you know, as I said, you know, inheritance, the, the discussion of inheritance is, is, you know, we can see that in Miami, we can see that here in Oakland, we can see similar circumstances across, you know, various Black communities, um, you know, in the United States, right? That again, that have been, you know, undermined and underserved um, and over-policed. And so chapter three for me was really a, a revelation or what, what was happening in Tulsa that ended up being discussed in chapter three was really a revelation because, what I saw was a community that recognized what was happening, recognized, you know, the limitations, recognized, you know, the histories that, that brought them to where they were. Um, but rather than say, well, listen, so-and-so did this to us or that process happened to us. And so therefore that's why we are the way we are or where we are, you know, where we are, you know, the, the narrative was one of community responsibility, it was one in which the community was saying, you know, only we can actually help ourselves. Only we can change our circumstances. Um, and so being able to detail that, I, I felt was a necessary kind of intervention into, you know, into the kind of discussion, you know, around Black poverty. And, 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 and to be sure, you know, there is, you know, there really are countless examples of community organizers um, you know, trying to advocate for this kind of, uh, you know, self-reliance, if you will. Um, but what was coming up was something that was deeper. It, it, was, it was something that was able to draw on the history of Greenwood and of Indian territory, you know, which is to say like, um, you know, I remember one guy in, in one of the meetings said something like, you know, our ancestors, you know, built Black Wall Street, you know, who are we asking someone else for a grocery store, you know, because, 
the prime, I mean, this is what the community ended up getting in large, in large parts. But, you know, the idea was, oh, well, let a nonprofit provide grocery access to us. And they're like, well, no, we shouldn't, we shouldn't have to do that because we know we can do more because our ancestors did more. Um, and so for me, you know, in various areas, so there was a grocery store, there were, you know, organizers trying to, you know, do community rehabilitation and redevelopment, you know, through, um, um, like relocation programs, you know, like getting people to move back to North Tulsa, you know, and, and, and trying to kind of generate community uh, through that way. There were, you know, organizations and organizers working around commercial development, um, you know, getting grants to, to start businesses. So, you know, everything was happening in, in all of these kinds of ways, you know, or in these different areas. But, you know, what was happening in this grocery store, you know, environment was something, you know, really critical because it was about, you know, one of the more, you know, necessary kinds of resources, food. Um, but it was it was something, you know, of a remarkable sense of place where, you know, what represented a remarkable sense of place to me where, you know, these locals realized that despite what, you know, what their circumstances were, they actually had ownership over this place in a way that I didn't think I've ever seen, you know, in other kind of community discourses. Um, their sense was this is our home, right? This is our land. This is our inheritance. And only we can actually fix it. And so for me, that's that really was the the, the kind of major takeaway, um, you know, from, from that grocery store meeting and, and from, you know, that chapter in the book. All right. So chapter four looks at... Uh... Black Tolson's articulations of repair and how that extends sort of beyond common slavery-based reparations. So what are Black Tolson's articulations of, rep- of reparations and how does this go beyond how we typically think of sort of Black African-American slavery-based reparations? Right. Okay. So, you know, what I, what I saw in Tulsa, you know, was a discourse where, you know, Black life started, you know, for them in a particular moment, in a particular geography. And, and, you know, that for them was, was Oklahoma, that for them was, was Greenwood. In many ways, you know, that led to a, 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 a kind of deprivileging, if you will, of the narrative of, of Black life starting in, in the South and in the plantation space um, during the period of slavery. Um, and, and, you know, of course, that's not to say that, you know, Black Tolsons don't recognize that their ancestors, you know, were enslaved and came from the South um, in many ways, although the history of of Indian removal, um, you know, to um, Indian territory shows that Black life in Indian territory, later Oklahoma, does have, you know, multiple starting points, um, not just, you know, with slavery, but within the kind of Black Native kind of, you know, cosmology, if you will, but still, um, for them, they recognized that Greenwood represented, you know, their origin story. And reparations for them was meant to, you know, get effectively get back to um, what we can think of as Black life as organized, you know, by that notion of Greenwood and that actual experience and history of Greenwood. And so reparations... You know, reparations, you know, again, while not discounting that, I think many Black Tulsans would recognize that reparations for, um, you know, slavery of, of, of African-Americans would be appropriate. Um, 
for them, you know, they were advocating for the particular injury that was a disruption of the life that they were able or their ancestors were able to create despite that history of slavery. Um, and I think it's an important lesson because when we actually think about um, post-emancipation Black life, we actually do have really, you know, a, you know, a plethora of examples of, of African-Americans accomplishing a great deal of social and cultural and economic development. Um, you know, what we do know is that I would argue that almost as critical, and I guess this is the argument of the book, almost as critical as the injury of slavery has been the kind of injury of post-emancipation anti-Blackness. Um, you know, and so we think about Greenwood, you know, as an exceptional Black space, you know, founded, uh, again, barely, you know, 50 years or so after, you know, after um, uh, emancipation. But what we also know is that during that same period, you know, African-Americans owned almost 14% of agricultural land in this country. We know that at the height of Jim Crow in 1910, you know, there were over 100 Black-owned banks in this country. Um, when we look at the statistics today, you're talking about, you know, African-American-owned land, you know, you know, having gone down to just over 1%. You're talking about, you know, just barely over a dozen or so um, you know, Black-owned banks in the United States. And so, you know, in many ways, you know, the, the question of repair that North Tulsans, you know, really demand that we ask is the question about well, how do we identify, you know, injury in, in the history of, of African-American life? And how do we actually prioritize, you know, what injuries do need accounting for? Um, because we tend to, you know, oftentimes in our narratives of reparations in this country, you know, really emphasize African-American slavery. Um, and it should be emphasized to be sure. But we have to make sure that we give equal weight, I would argue. And that might be a controversial statement, but I think we have to actually give equal weight you know, to the kinds of post-emancipation injuries that African-Americans faced and continue to face today. Um, and, and so that's what the kind of notions of reparations and repair, um, you know, I, I take away from at least the, the, the North Tulsa case that I think are really broadly applicable, you know, to the general African-American context in the U.S. Totally. And so you've already spoken a little bit about chapter five. Um, I was really interested in this notion that you talk about that uh, black, black place is already and always contingent and determined by existing race, racist structures and that that's how we typically think about sort of black place. Um, so I wonder if you could just uh, tell, tell us a little bit about your argument in that chapter and maybe touch upon uh, that notion that sort of underlines the way that we tend to think about sort of black spaces. Yeah, so the, the, the point is that, you know, I, I wanted to somewhat, you know, um, I won't say disrupt, right? Because, you know, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to, to try and deny that a lot of, you know, Black relations to place are actually contingent and, and completely marked by racism. That's, that's the truth. Um, but it's not the only truth. Right. And so and I think as, as as important as it is to kind of detail the kind of histories of harm, and that's part of my actual work, you know, as as a task force member on, on the, the California Reparations Task Force, who spent over a year just going through the gruesome work of of an harrowing work of just hearing the kind of testimonies and histories of, of, of anti black violence in the state's history. Um, but you know, there were also a lot of other stories, right? Um, 
that in many ways preceded the violence. So I talk about Greenwood, you know, I talk about Indian territory. And what does it mean for us to actually identify, you know, black spatial relations, you know, that are affirming, that are productive, that are positive? Um, you know, once you identify them, you begin to understand that actually, you know, the, the primary thrust of anti-black violence is is a violence that, that directly attacks, you know, black relationality, black people's relations to each other and 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 to place. And so, you know, it's interruptive violence, in other words. And so for me, it's important for us to to understand and to then to begin to prioritize and privilege, you know, that work, which, which helps to identify, um, if not celebrate, but at least to identify and to think from, you know, these more affirming um, and, and productive Black, you know, Black spatial relations and, and community relations. And so with, with Chapter 5, the territory, you know, my my objective in that chapter was to you know was to give a history of of that of that process and you know in, in detailing you know what black settlers you know to indian territory were able to do how they were able to really you know remap you know their existence and their futures because of this kind of relationship to land that they were able to and to place as a result um, that they were able to develop, you know, I think really represents a kind of, um, you know, an ideal example for how we should think about, um, you know, post-reparations, you know, Black community development. And so in other words, if we get something called reparations, if we acquire something called reparations, if we demand something called reparations, um, the question that immediately follows is, well, what do we do now, <laughs> right? And 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 I think that looking looking... Um, prior to that moment, looking for and cataloging the kinds of, again, productive and affirming and affirmative relations uh, to place um, in African-American history gives us a, a roadmap, in other words, for what I think you know, African-Americans should do upon receipt of, of or successful receipt of, of reparations. Um, but even absent reparations, right, because we have to remember post-emancipation, African-Americans did not get reparations. <laughs> and so despite having reparations, they were still able to build these communities, still able to, to build these lives. And so really, even beyond the scope of receiving reparations, right, Indian territory and its history, you know, tells us a lot about what, you know, Black community formation could look like. And so in that chapter, I try to detail really some of the, the processes and, and some of the techniques and the ethics, especially, um, that led to kind of post-emancipation African-American community development that went on to found things like All Black Towns and then, to, you know, to kind of inspire and, and direct something like the Greenwood District um, prior to its its violent, um, you know, interruption um, in 1921. Absolutely. Uh, and so at the end of your introduction, you write uh, Justice for Greenwood. And so I just wanted to circle back to that, right? So circle, circling back to uh, this idea of reparations beyond how we typically think of them, uh, from the conversations that you had with Black Tolsons, uh, what does Justice for Greenwood mean? Justice for Greenwood, um, well, one, there is, there is a, you know, there is an organization or at least an organizational movement, uh, you know, coordinated around this notion of Justice for Greenwood. Um, Justice for Greenwood is a statement um, demanding reparations for the history of the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre, 
Um, you know, but for me, justice for Greenwood, even beyond, I think some of the more those more more obvious um, kind of directives and inspirations is is me advocating for a full recognition of what Greenwood was, uh, what Greenwood actually is, because you know part of the argument in the book is that listen, there are actually black people today who live in Greenwood. <laughs> Right, Greenwood is not a dead space. Greenwood is not a forgotten space. Greenwood is not a historical space, or at least not only a historical space. And so, for me, it is about looking comprehensively, you know, at Greenwood as a community, as a living community, um, and one that is working towards repair, reparations. Um, and and I think in asking for justice for Greenwood, you know, I'm asking, you know, for justice for you know, all of the black communities, you know, uh, whose members both, you know, in the past and today are working, you know, to restore themselves, are working to repair, you know, their community relations and to build something new, um, you know, for themselves and, and for their, you know, for their, um, you know, their children. And so Justice for Greenwood is that, you know, it is a, it is a reparative declaration, but it is a, it is a call to recognize, you know, the actually living, uh, you know, uh, actually living community of Greenwood today. And what sort of audience did you imagine for this work? Um, you know, the audience for me is, the audience for me was a, um, ooh, okay, the audience for me was everyone who is interested in the, the, the question of, uh, you know, black community development. Um, everyone who is interested in the kind of history of the the way that you know U.S. Uh, capital and development has worked um, through the effective and intentional destruction of African American and other minority uh, communities. Um, it was also really, you know, an attempt to, 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 to help think with other Black Studies scholars because what I wanted, um, and especially in the, in the chapter on, on Indian territory, what I wanted was to introduce this language of sovereignty, you know, into the kind of, or rather reintroduce this, this language of sovereignty, you know, into the kind of North American Black Studies, uh, you know, discourse. Um, there is a lot of emphasis on notions of freedom and unfreedom, the freedom to be to gain, the long emancipation um, in Black studies in, in the U.S. But I also wanted us to recognize the many freedoms that Black Americans have already achieved and how those freedoms have continuously been interrupted. Um, and so for, for me, you know, if I were to be honest, that's, that's really the, the emphasis, right, is to say, Black people have been free, Black people are free, but what we have been facing is a continuous assault on our freedom. And so I think by a simple shift in perspective around this issue, we, we end up opening up a whole kind of uh, realm of possibilities for how to understand the complexity of Black life. Because otherwise we end up becoming complicit in the, the kind of limiting um, the making singular of the Black narrative. And I think we can only accomplish what we all hope for in reparations or overall you know, liberation as an ongoing practice um, by, by recognizing the complexity and the multiplicity of Black life um, and, and its many narratives. 
Right. Uh, well, Dr. Lewis, we've taken up a lot of your time, and thank you again for being so gracious with your time. So I'll just ask uh, one final question here. What are you working on now? Yeah, thank you. So um, I, I am I am currently working on a, a couple of projects. You know, one um, is is trying to think through the question of reparations. You know, as a result of of you know my my total scholarship as well as my ongoing work. Um, actually doing, you know, reparations. And I think, um, you know, what's, what's really important is, is, is the, is, is recognizing and trying to think through some of the, the activities that I've been able to, and have been required to take part in as a member of the task force, um, in California. So what I'll say is that, you know, part of my scope of responsibility, um, is, is overseeing the economics team that is actually calculating, um, the harms African-Americans, um, have experienced in the state. And so I want to think through that process of calculation. I want to think through the, the kind of long-term um, principles of Black life right, as a, a kind of um, what we might think of as a value proposition in the United States. I am interested in thinking about, you know, what, what does, you know, Black life post-repair if not reparations, actually look like. Um, so I'm, I'm thinking through a whole host of these these kinds of um, related processes to to come towards something of a, I guess we could call it a full theory of reparations. You know, something that that does take into account not just the injuries African Americans have experienced and continues to you know continue to experience, but also. Um, again, the many, the many futures, you know, that, that black light, um, you know, can be. And then I'm also, you know, working on um, a project on, you know, really dealing with this, this question of, of, of black relations, you know, how we might think through, um, you know, this, this history of, of what actually constitutes uh, blackness in the Atlantic world. Um, and so, yeah, more to come. But at the moment, you know, I'm a department chair, you know, I am... I am uh, working on the task force. You know, we're about to issue our final recommendation in the next few months. Um, you know, we we issued an interim report last last year, which is a 500-page detailing of the history of anti-black harms in the state of California. We are about to issue, um, you know, our final recommendation, which is about another 200 pages of recommendations across 12 areas of harm for African Americans, and um, thinking through, you know, all of that. Will, will take a little bit of time, um, and 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 I hope to to get to you know these next projects as soon as I can after a little bit of rest. I think absolutely. Uh, I know that we all want to thank you for the work that you've done, both this work that we're talking about now, and also the work on the reparations project. So thank you very much for that. Thank you also for your time today, uh, and I want to thank you for being on the show. I really enjoyed the conversation, and take care. Thank you so much, Amari. It's been a pleasure. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. 
And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.